and welcome to this week's episode from A Lancashire Lass with me, Lucy Baxter, as featured on BBC Radio 4 Extra's Podcast Hour and BBC Radio Manchester. Joining me today is quite a famous person in Lancashire, well, especially in South Ribble that is. I am, of course, talking about the Senior Director of Ribble Vets, Mr Stephen Baxter. Welcome to the podcast, Stephen. How are you today? I'm very well, thank you, Lucy. How are you? I'm great, I'm great. So, I must say that we obviously know each other. I am your daughter. But we are going to be chatting about you today, your career and how you're a legend in the area, if that sounds okay with you. I'm not sure a legend is the right word. Oh, I'm excited to learn more about you in this episode. So take me back to when you were younger. Did you always want to be a vet? From about the age of 14, I wanted to be a vet. I was born on a dairy farm, but it was only a very small dairy farm. And my father said, "Um, you don't want to be working on a dairy farm. You want a normal job, a nine to five job and get every weekend off. So I failed in that miserably. So why at 14 did you want to, like what moment did you think, yes, I want to be a vet? We had a cow that was down after calving and it was unable to stand and it was due to a condition called milk fever which is a shortage of calcium that some dairy cows get after they calve and if they don't get calcium into the bloodstream fairly quickly they will die which is exactly what this cow did about five minutes before the vet turned up in the yard he'd done his best he'd probably broken the speed limit to get to us Mm. but um, he couldn't save the cow and I thought well with a little bit of knowledge I could probably have got some calcium into that cow and saved its life and I thought well a little bit of knowledge it'd be all right for one or two things but it would be better if we had uh, a bit more knowledge and well why don't I become a vet which seemed like a really good idea so I did. But as we both know, it's not a nine to five weekends off kind of job. So we'll, we'll move on to that in, in, in a bit more detail later on. So from 14, that was when you decided you wanted to be a vet. Why don't you tell me what it was like living on the farm? So it was a dairy farm. What kind of jobs did you have to do and sort of what age were you when you were doing some things? Well, from a very young age, I was looking after the calves in the morning before I went to school. <clears throat> And in the evening, I'd be feeding them when I got back from school. Uh, Weekends were spent delivering milk because we had a small milk round. And Easter holidays and summer holidays, I was every day on the milk round. Um, I was helping around the farm in general. It was a busy life. But when I was very young, all my friends from the village used to come round and play on the farm because we had so much more room and so many more things to do than the average child and it was wonderful. Yeah, and I bet just like playing around on the farmyard and stuff was like for a young child so free and you felt like you could kind of get up to any adventures you wanted and had, as you said, more space to, to play around. Which is exactly what we did and this was the time before nowadays where 
when we used to go out nine o'clock in the morning and we wouldn't be seen for five or six hours because we were out playing in a field somewhere or getting up to some sort of mischief and nobody worried about it and the roads were quiet and we'd get out on our bikes and it was just very straightforward and, and a very simple existence. It was super. Can you share any of the mischievous moments you had when you were a child? Something that might make people laugh? Well, you're asking me this question knowing that there is something. <laughs> when we tried to roll some potatoes in the barn and uh, set the barn on fire and <laughs> had several fire engines come round and attempt to put it out before it caught the house on fire. So yes, we got up to all sorts. And so you then went to, well, obviously you went primary school, high school, sixth form, sixth form, not college. Sixth form. Sixth form. You then went to Liverpool University. Obviously that's where I went, but I didn't intentionally pick the same university, but it's it's been lovely sort of being at the same university you went to sort of many, many decades ago for you. Cheeky. Um, why did you choose the University of Liverpool? There were only five or six universities that would teach veterinary science and I was refused from all the others except Liverpool so they offered me a place if I got two grade A's and a grade B in the A-levels I did which were physics, chemistry and biology and I got one A and two B's but they still accepted me which was very good. Did you want to stay close to home so you could go back and help on the farm or did you kind of want to get away? Like what was your sort of experience like at university? I enjoyed university life but uh, I did go home at regular intervals to help my dad out on the farm. Oh, that's good of you. Um, and so what was Liverpool like in the 19... Late 70s, 70s and early 80s. What was it like? And as a Manchester as United supporter, it was a bad time because <laughs> Liverpool were winning lots of European Cups. And within a month of me leaving Liverpool, they were obviously so sad that I was leaving that they started rioting, the Toxteth riots. Oh. Mm. And the course you were on is obviously still going. Liverpool's still one of the top universities to train to be a vet. And I, I have friends that did veterinary science there and they were saying all about the rotationals and everything they do. And then, you, is it your third year you go to, what's that place called? on the Lee Hurst. Lee Hurst. And it's a very intense course, isn't it? It's a it's very, intense, very intense course, yes. So you wouldn't have had much of a, I don't know, you might not have gone out as much at night or had as much social life because you had a lot of contact time and had to learn a lot of things and concentrate, basically. We were in lectures or practicals at least eight hours most days of the week and from the fourth and final year um, when we were out at Lee Hurst a lot of the time we were often on nights and weekends as well so it was uh, it was very intense. And they were very strict weren't they with your registration making sure you're at the lectures? Occasionally they would hold a registration to make sure that we'd turned up to the lectures because it was part of the um, expectation that we would um, attend all the lectures and all the practicals, yeah. And then you graduated in 1981. Correct, well done. See, I listen. And um, obviously I didn't get a graduation because of the pandemic, but you did, so that's, you know, woohoo for you. 
<laughs> um, where was your first job and how did you feel once you were a qualified vet? Were you nervous to get back actually out into the real world? or? I went for three interviews. The first interview was in Lincoln and I went about two or three weeks before my final exam mm -hmm. and they wanted someone to start as soon as possible, which I took to mean uh, after the exam. Mm -hmm. So I drove my old car from Liverpool to Lincoln. I had a successful um, interview and they offered me the job and they said, when can you start? And I said, well, I've got to finish my final exams. Oh, we want someone before then. Well, that was a bit of a disappointment seeing as how I had told them that I hadn't finished my uh, course yet. Mm. So that was the first interview. Gosh, times would have been so different if you'd have moved, like, to ended Lincoln. up in Lincoln. Yeah. Your life would have been completely different. Completely wow. different. Carry on. The second interview was in Cumbria. Mm -hmm. um, and the man interviewing me was a one-man band veterinary practice. Wow. Um, he had a, there was a very large house there with a, a, a sort of lean-to greenhouse. Mm -hmm. uh, there was a Range Rover and a beat-up old estate car. And he said, uh, this is my house. You'll be living there, pointing at the lean-to. I said, oh, he said, this is my car, pointing to the Range Rover. That's your car, pointing to the battered up old estate car. I said, oh, <laughs> he said, um, it's quite a quiet practice. You'll finish work most days at four o'clock in the afternoon. Uh, we don't work much after that. Consequently, I can only give you about three quarters of the going salary at the moment. I said, oh. And then he said, and the first three weeks you're here, you'll be in sole charge because I'm going on holiday. So I said, oh. <laughs> so I think after four O's, I thought, no, this is not the job for me. Mm -hmm. The third interview was in Preston, which is where I am now. Um, he was a one-man band at the time. So I uh, started work. I worked every other night and every other weekend. Uh, and every Saturday morning. Um, and there were two vets in the practice and someone who did everything else. Um, and we, it, we learned a lot in a very short time because there were only two of us. So if uh, the other person was working hard or somewhere else, then I had to get on and do it myself. So that's how it happened. And they say, don't they, that when you qualify as a vet, that you're obviously studying at university and yes, you do your rotationals and you have practical, but you don't fully actually learn until you're actually on your first job. As in, that's when you really learn how to do it because you're on your, not on your own, but you're having to look at a cow or look at a dog and think, right, I'm, the vet, I'm qualified now, it needs this. And you have to have the confidence and I guess it's hard at first for new vets to get that confidence straight away. It is very hard. What we used to have to do and, this, and the students still have to do is a lot of hours, a lot of weeks of seeing practice with um, veterinary practices. So 
um, I can't remember the exact number of weeks, but it was several weeks over Christmas and Easter, mm. and most of the summer holidays was taken up with going out with a, a, a qualified vet and seeing how things worked in each different practice, which is what I did for many happy weeks. And when you started doing the job in Preston, did you want to be a small animal vet, a large animal vet, both, equine? Where was your heart at that point? Large animal vet wanted to be on farms dealing with cattle and sheep mainly, mm-hmm. um, which is what I did for the first few years. And then we started doing more and more small animal work. And uh, a, a premises was purchased. So the small animal work started increasing. So I had to learn small animal skills fairly quickly. So I did a lot of mixed practice, which Mm. I did for the next 30 years. And do you find now that like newly qualified vets, do they either choose small animal or large or is it, or is it better to start as mixed? Like what's, what's good for a newly qualified vet? Some Newly qualified vets know that they only want to do small animal work and some know that they only want to do large animal work and a smaller number want to do mixed practice where they do something of everything. We employ um, quite We'll get on to that bit. We'll oh. get on to that bit later. Sorry? I'm going in like chronological order of oh, your life. Very scientific. I don't want to, don't want to give any spoilers. Um, so then how many years was it until you went back to university for your other qualification and what was that in? That was a diploma in bovine reproduction. Cow mating. Yes, <laughs> and that was in the mid-90s. Okay. And was that just to have another string to your bow so you could do different operations or things or was it no, just to nothing keep... nothing to do with different operations, nothing to do with... Um, too much with what extra I could do, but I learned an awful lot in the two years that we did the diploma. And that again was at Liverpool? Again at Liverpool. Oh, lovely. And then when you started, what was the vet industry like and what was the practice you worked at like compared to now? Sort of what was it like back then being a vet? Um, there were two of us and we did around about 25 or 30,000 miles a year, rushing here, there and everywhere, um, treating cows and sheep, uh, a few horses, wherever and whenever. Mm-hmm. Um, and as we got busy with the small animal side, we took a, another a vet on, uh, so we perhaps did fewer miles. Um, because we were doing a lot of small animal work as the large animal work and because there were three of us we we weren't covering the same uh, distance Mm. and then gradually over the years we employed more and more vets. And has the technology changed with treating animals? Has it advanced a lot from when you were a mere graduate? The basics are still the same. Um, The drugs and such like that we have available to us now. Uh, there are far more of them than there, there ever were when I started. Um, but the actual treatment of the cows and the dogs and the cats is much the same as it was, mm-hmm. yes. 
And then you became a partner at what was called White's. Yes. What year did you become a partner? In the early 90s. Mm-hmm. And what what changed for you when you became a partner? Like, did you have more responsibilities or what, what, what was that like when you had that sort of... More responsibilities, more work, yeah. And was that always your sort of ambition to sort of climb the ladder and become like a, a partner in a business? Yes, that's what I aimed to become. From when you were 14 or just as you kind of progressed? As I realised what the veterinary profession was like, yeah. Thank you for that answer. Um, then it became White and Baxter. So when you became partner, it was White and Baxter. Then Baxter and Marwood. And then Baxter, Marwood and Brown. Then it changed to a limited company and it became Ribble Vets. How did you and your partners decide on the name Ribble Vets? I think it's a fantastic name. We threw it open to anyone to come up with a sensible name. <clears throat> and Robin Brown's wife, Rosemary, came up with the name Ribble Vets. Yeah. I think it works better than sort of like Vetty McVetface. You know how that David well, that, Attenborough boat that, was like Boaty McBoatface? Yeah, that wouldn't be very good. Good it? afternoon, Vetty McVetface. How may I help you? It doesn't have a written to it. Um, so, yeah, you sat, you sat on... You sat... <laughs> He's just miming to himself, Fetty McVetface, because that wasn't on the list of questions. I um, because, of course, we're doing this podcast in person because we live in the same household and it's all COVID fine and everything. I don't know why I pointed that out, but there we go. Um, so then Ribble Vets. And, I, and so it's been Ribble Vets since what year? Two... Hmm. Good question. 2000 and... 10-ish? Yeah, I was going to say it's been around then. It's been Ribble Vets for a long time now. Um, and of course you were based at... That'll pick up on you on the microphone. He's like got his hand on his chin and his hand on... It and just, it'll interact with the microphone sounds. <laughs> um, so you were at New Lane, 58 New Lane in Penwitham. How long were you there for? Was that the practice you said that you bought originally? The practice bought that... With, and that's how the small animals increased, is that yes. that building? So yes. you were there basically from the start? And then we bought the house next door. Okay. So we'd have more room. Oh. And then we had someone living there, and then we bought a house instead of that so that we could use the upstairs as offices. Mm-hmm. And then it must have been... Six or so years ago, you started the exciting process of designing and building a purpose-built building for the yes, vets yes. in Penwitham, as you'd outgrown the premises at New Lane quite substantially. Talk me through the process of moving, building 80 Liverpool Road, which listeners will probably know used to be the old police station in Penwitham on the high street. Talk me through just the whole process of like the design, how long it took, the input you had, I know like the first dig and stuff like that. Why don't you talk me through all that? Well, we had a plot of land lined up several miles away from where we are now, nearer the old place in Penwitham. Mm-hmm. Um, but there were one or two hiccups and one or two limitations in there. So that didn't materialise. Um, so we started looking around for a parcel of land to buy 
and the old police station in Penwortham came on the market mm -hmm. and we had a figure in mind which was the most we could go to and as it turned out that figure was exactly what um, we paid for it. Uh, it was quite amusing at the time because nobody knew who had bought the uh, old police station or what it was going to be used for but I had various people telling me that it was going to be a wine bar and various people told me it was going to be a block of flats and all these people had it on genuine 100% certain authority that that's what it was going to be uh, but funnily enough I knew it was going to be a vet mm. so that was back in 2013 or 14 mm -hmm. um, we then sat down with an architect and over a six-month period, we, between us, designed what we wanted. Um, I think that you should name the architects, because they, they did a good job. Wilson Mason. Wilson Mason in Salmsbury. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It took, yeah, very many months to get it all down and, uh, on, on a plan. And then we started building. And with the design with the architects, were you going for something that sort of fitted with the street scene? Because it does look, I think, it looks very, and I'm probably being biased, but I don't, I don't think I am. It, it looks very, it fits in well where it is. It fits in really well. You've not, it's not like an ugly building. It's like, it's a pretty building. So how much thought went into sort of making it sort of fit the street scene and match the houses in a way? A lot of thought went into the, making it look like several detached houses, one next to the other, mm -hmm. so that it would match the other houses in the street. Mm -hmm. um, the front was designed to match the bank, which was on the opposite side of the road, which is now a subway. <laughs> um, as to your words that it's a very nice looking building uh, people in the area would dispute that uh, hotly because um, when we put the plans into the council and there was a council meeting on the evening when it was uh, discussed um, there were a lot of people who were against um, the building being the police station being torn down and um, a new building going up instead um, they came up with all sorts of uh, reasons why it shouldn't be a vets from a vastly increased number of cars which there are an increased number of cars I can't argue with that but as it turns out the high street in Penwortham now uh, is reasonably quiet as far as cars are concerned since they built the bypass. So I think now um, it is uh, greatly beneficial to the Penwortham area mm. and has helped um, lift the whole of the that end of Penwortham. Yeah. Which can be seen when we have um, 
the Christmas market stall for uh, yeah for, because for it goes all the way down to there, doesn't it? it with goes us all doing the way that. down, yeah. And I guess it's part of like the community on the street, high street as well. There's always things happening, and it's a very like busy high street with the community. I was going to ask um, if you've found that since the bypass, you've you've still you're still getting people because I think you've been established there long enough, haven't you? So people know where you are even though the bypass sort of goes around Pemberton and not through it now? I think it, we've been open for five years nearly. Um, I think word of mouth has been the best advert for the practice. Mm. Um, we have no signs anywhere pointing toward it, but it is very straightforward and easy to find. Mm. Um, and you have a car park as well, like... That's something that the old practice didn't have. You've got a car park, so the cars aren't blocking any roads or streets. You've got you've got a great car park facility for the for the clients there. We have a large car park. We can manage um, fourteen or fifteen cars on the front. Mm. Um, we do rent quite a few spaces and the church opposite, so that quite a few staff park there. But there's a lot of street parking in the area and we do attempt um, to cause as little disruption to the local community as possible. Mm. And I think we have succeeded in this. Yeah. And then you started practising at the new premises in December 2015. That's right, isn't it? I did my research. Or was it 16? 15? Yeah. 2015. Right. It was December 2015. I'm pretty sure it was like the 6th of December. And I remember that the phone switched at 5pm. And the phones were chaos. What was it like? So how was it? You did your first dig, didn't you? You did the first dig. Yes. With um, your partners and your practice managers, manager. And you said so that whole building process was really exciting seeing it happen. And then when everything was in and you were having a look round and it had gone literally from one brick to this whole building, how did you feel like, when that 5pm hit and the phone started ringing and people were coming to the new practice, how was that transfer? It was chaos. <laughs> it was chaos. We still had people, we still had maybe 15 workmen in there. Uh, the car park hadn't been finished. Um, Why did you choose that day then? If we hadn't said we're going to take it on such a day, I think we'd still be building it. If not now, then when? Correct. <laughs> so we had a little trouble with the phones. They didn't uh, turn over quite as promised, which we thought they wouldn't. So we weren't disappointed. Yeah, you were prepared. Um, and it's just gone from there. You had an open day, didn't you, a few years ago where you could show people your facilities. And so for people listening who don't know or haven't been or driven past, what facilities do you have at Rebel Vets in Penwitham? And what, sort of paint me a picture from entering the, entering the vets, what it's like. It's a very light and airy building. It is. We have a waiting room for about 20 people, which of course for the last, 18 months or so we haven't used. Yeah, and we'll get on to that. But what, what about the different parts of the waiting room? Because that's a good feature you've got. We have the dog waiting area and a cat waiting area where hopefully the cats don't get too stressed. Mm -hmm. We have, 
um, several consulting rooms. We have a, a dispensary. Mm -hmm. We have a hydrotherapy room. And that's quite unusual, isn't it, to have one of it those is. on in-house? In-house, it is. We have um, a large prep room. We have a sterilisation room where all the kits are prepared with water clouds and such like. We have an x-ray room and we have an ultrasound and scope room. We have a separate dental room. And why is that important to have it separate for dental? Well, a dental room needs to be isolated from any other area because when you're performing a dental, you can quite often get a lot of bacteria being released from the mouth when you're either polishing or scaling teeth or such like. Mm. So it has its own uh, air supply, which uh, takes all these bacteria out outside after filtration um, and is totally separate from anywhere else in the building. So that works really well. Uh, we have a um, isolation ward, we have a cat ward, we have a dog ward, we have six walking dog kennels. Are they for big dogs? For big dogs. We have a cat condos where if you want to board your cat with us, you can do. And these are really luxurious um, cat condominiums. And is that good for sort of cats that have got maybe more health problems and, or can it be for any cat? It can be for any cat, but um, quite often we do have cats that are in on medication. Um, just the other week, we had uh, a phone call from someone who was very distressed that they'd taken their cat to another kennels to be looked after, but the kennels had struggled to give the cat its medication. So they'd phoned the owner up and said, we can't give these tablets to your cat. And this cat would have fits if it didn't get these tablets. So consequently, the cat came to us and we sorted it. And then you've got a laboratory. We have a lab, yes. Do most vets have that or do you do quite a lot of like analysis of bloods that maybe other practices would have to send off? We have a, a lot of uh, diagnostic equipment. We have a very good ultrasound, a very good x-ray system. Um, we have gastroscopes and endoscopes. Um, well, yes, we have a lot of... Um, diagnostic equipment and then you've got a large animal ward haven't you so what's that for we have a, a, and a different a, exit and entrance yeah we do um we can i'm trying to think what the biggest animal we've had in you've had we've, a reindeer we've had a reindeer <laughs> in yeah hmm. we have uh, we have uh, alpacas in and llamas in we've had large calves in hmm. so we've had all sorts in for fluid therapy and for um treatment yes and then, so that's all downstairs, and then you've got upstairs, is that just offices, or what's upstairs? Upstairs we have a, a large staff room. Um, I would say in a normal time, probably 10 or 20 staff could be eating at any one time, but at the moment, of course, it's different. Um, it's different so we only have four staff there. We do have a conference suite, which will hold about 40 or 50 people. 
which at the moment, because we're not having any conferences, is a, a large staff room, so people can space out there and eat with e easily following social guidelines for social distancing. And we can open a lot of windows to get a nice through draft. Um, what else have you done? What else do you do in the conference room? We often hold uh, farmer meetings there if we want to discuss anything with some of the farmers. Hmm. And we've, I think the most we've had, we quite often have Christmas quizzes uh, when fun. we can have 50 or 60 farmers turn up and we have to split them into two rooms. So they are good fun. They're competitive and they good fun. They are competitive. And is that, that's it upstairs, isn't it? Um, we have uh, two flats as well for two vets. Who are on call sometimes? And... Who are on call? Well, two small animal vets and we have two rooms where someone can sleep over. So it's pretty fair to say then, after say, after like going through all that, that it is like quite state-of-the-art facilities. Um, in 2018, you announced that the practice had been awarded hospital status by yes. the Royal College of Veterinary Surgeons. Yes. How did you feel when you found that out? We'd worked very hard towards it, so um, we were fairly confident we would um, achieve the um, the veterinary hospital status. Mm. Um, so we weren't surprised when we got it, but we'd put an awful lot of work into it. So it was good, very good. And I'm guessing that you're probably one of the only, there's only be a small amount of those in the northwest. Not very many purpose-built veterinary hospitals at all. And you also, because of the facilities, do a lot of other vets in the areas out of hours work? We do. We have the facilities and uh, the staff to do all our own out of hours which is quite rare nowadays so um, that's emergency 24 7 if you go to ribble vets you'll be if your pet has an emergency are you saying that your own vets will see the treat our, the animal our own vets will see the animal on our own premises and we are one of the few practices in the area which do this quite a lot of the practices have um, another company who do their out-of-hours work so their clients will be seen by a vet who has never seen that pet before. And that's not as good as it in terms of like you want the continuity of the same vet or knowing the history of the animal and things like that. So what, how many vets and like feel free to name them if you want, do you do their out-of-hours? Just I'm thinking if listeners are listening um, and maybe they're a different vet and possibly didn't know that they, their vets don't do their out-of-hours because it's, it's an important thing to add. So why don't you talk about those? Most of the vets in the Preston and surrounding district don't do their own out-of-hours service. They pay another vet to do their out-of-hours work for them. Mm-hmm. Um, and we do the out-of-hours work for, I think, six practices in the Southport area who um, wow. come to us. Wow. And you're still, well, you are an independent veterinary 
we are one of the only independent uh, uh, vets in the area yeah. and i'm guessing that others are corporate is that <clears throat> and that again isn't as good as being independent for the clients and things like that in my opinion it isn't the corporates would have their own opinion okay and you've got other branches so Penwitham's sort of the main hub the main hospital and then you've got these other branches and where are they we have one in leyland Mm-hmm. And we Golden have, Hill yeah, and we have one in Westham near Kirkham. Mm-hmm. And that's for small animals. Small animals. Although the one in Kirkham, we have a lot of large animal clients in the area there who will call in at the Kirkham practice if they need anything. That's good. And now we can go on to talk about how many vets slash members of staff you employ approximately because there's quite a lot i've been thinking about this today because i was talking to someone about this and there are probably around about 15 vets wow we have probably 20 nurses wow and about the same number of reception staff and admin staff um i think the total is now high 50s so um, more it, it's, it's got to be more than it's that. It's a large, large enterprise. And as senior director of them, how has your role changed from when you first became a partner when you were with uh, Andrew White? Uh, quite considerably, because when I became a partner, there were maybe four or five of us, and um, the role was mainly a veterinary role. Mm-hmm. Now that I'm senior director, uh, quite a bit of the work is more uh, managerial or decision-making rather than hands-on veterinary work. Mm-hmm. Um, we have an exceptional practice manager. and um, We do. We do, and a bookkeeper who uh, work very hard. Um, and it, and it works well. So how has Reb- Rebel, not a Rebel, how has Rebel Vets changed its ways during the pandemic? Because let's not forget vets and nurses were key workers too. Uh, the large animal vets were key workers. The small animal vets, not as much. Mm. Um, Was that because of food production with the large animal vets? The large animal vets were looked upon as um, a very important part of food production which they are um, the small animal vets and nurses and receptionists we split into many teams so that if one member of a team uh, went down with covid they would take out that team rather than the whole practice yeah um, because lots of vets have shot Oh, had to close during the pandemic because they've unfortunately had an outbreak. So it's good that you've been able to split into groups and keep treating animals. Wonderful. That's exactly how it's worked. And that's exactly how we hoped it would work up to now. Um, We don't let any members of the public into the practice at the moment. Mm -hmm. uh, Or we didn't do up until the last few weeks. We now let people come in for hydrotherapy sessions. But this is... Um, one person with their pet and the uh, nurse who is performing the hydrotherapy 
in a well-ventilated room and PPE'd up. And why is that? Why for hydrotherapy? Because it's a lot easier if the owner is with the pet for the, for the pet to perform to the level which we want it to do so for its benefit. And with hydrotherapy, what is it in terms of it's it's basically from what I've seen it's a treadmill which walk with water. Yeah. <clears throat> and you put the water to the joint above the joint you're working. We put it so that the animal isn't taking all its weight on the joint. So the joint is being moved but not weight bearing to the same degree as if it was out of water. And so you're not letting people come into the into the practice. So you're taking the animals off them in the car park, generally paying over the phone, I'm guessing. Yep. How's that worked? And now that restrictions have lifted, how are you have you changed? Are you still doing that? What what's your thoughts? We're what still doing the same at the moment because our team are young and Quite a lot have only had one injection up to now. Vaccination. So, yeah. <laughs> so we're protecting uh, our staff. We're protecting the members of the public mm. because we want to be able to be there to help their pets. Um, we have loosened the rule uh, we had on the unfortunate time when when it it, it comes to saying goodbye to their pet. Um, Early on in lockdown, we couldn't go within two metres of the member of the public. So we um, um, helped their pet leave uh, by using a very long injection line Mm. so that they could hold the pet and we could be two metres away and injecting. Uh, we've now loosened that. We are allowing two people to be in a, a designated room. Um, again, all masked up and PPE'd up mm. um, so that they can be with their pets when, it, in, when it's time for them to go. And obviously it's been a lot more stressful this last year, but it is a stressful job anyway. I know that the vet industry has one of the largest suicide rates in sort of job sectors why do you think this is and what are some of the biggest challenges that vets face i think a lot of vets become very attached to the pets that they're dealing with Mm -hmm. Um, and as a result um, when something goes wrong or, or, or when it's time for the pet to go, they become emotionally involved. Mm. Um, sometimes they're in a small practice where they can't talk to anyone else about it. Mm. Um, and I think the reason the suicide level is so high is because of the um, availability of substances that can be used for this. Yeah, and that's very sad. And I think now there's a lot more sort of charities, helplines, things available for vets who are struggling that I know as a practice, if if people are struggling with uh, maybe at Ribble Vets that you're able to direct for help and things like that. Um, because I can imagine it is a very stressful job because you wouldn't 
because for some people the pets are their children they for are. many yeah and that's like it's just as sad as some you know so people obviously get really upset and vets want to help them so i can i can see why it's a stressful job um so you've been qualified for 40 years 40 years last week congratulations um, and you went to, to university with the Yorkshire vet. Yes, he was in my year, was Pete right? Um, I'd like to know from the Lancashire vet what's changed since then in terms of, we've, we have touched on it, but sort of, if you had to say the biggest, the top thing that's changed since you qualified, is it uh, more people have pets or is it um, technology or is, what would that's you say? That's a very difficult question. I would say that the thing that's changed most is it, it's, it used to be um, a large animal practice primarily mm-hmm. and the small animal side was tagged on to the large animal side. But with the number of pets that there are now, uh, the small animal side is um, the greater part of it. And um, the, the pet owning public deservedly uh, expect more than we used to be able to give them 20, 30 or 40 years ago. Um, the, the, the level of care and the level of treatment that we can give these pets now hmm. is vastly superior to what it used to be. And I guess it's also important to note though that as much as maybe it's slightly more small animal, you're very much put just as much focus and concentration and effort and attention to your farm animal clients, your large animal clients, we, your equine. You treat you treat everyone equally. We do. We have um, um, vets who deal only with large animals. We have, I'm uh, doing a quick calculation in my head, four or five vets who concentrate solely on farm animals and which horses. Is, which was the number of vets you started out with when you were back in the day, you said. So, well, maybe near enough. So that's like cool how it's just focusing on farm vets there. Um, a few questions that people have got in touch with. is <laughs> The face Stephen Baxter's currently pulling is mouth open gasping. Um, they're just questions about you. They're not sort of people's questions about animals. Good. Favourite animal? Cow. What is your favourite hobby? I have several favourite hobbies. What's the what's a cool hobby that um you like you like cycling, don't you? Uh, I like cycling. Recently I like motorcycling. 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 Why do you like motorcycling? Because it's good fun. Yep. Favourite type of dog? I like Labradors. Labradors? Black Labrador. Have you ever had a pet? I have several pets now. What are they? I have Pip the Rabbit. Pip the Rabbit. My, my rabbit. officially yours, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. When did you last clean him out? I'm not allowed to do that. When did, you last, when did you last feed him? This isn't out in Lucy on her own podcast. <laughs> This is Pip the Family Rabbit. Pip the Family Rabbit, who of course. Lucy and her mum are allergic to. Um, very fluffy boy. And what other pets do you have? Four hens. Who you love way more than your daughter. 
The hens, yeah. What are their names? Um, we have Lacey. Lacey. Who's broody. Mm-hmm. We have Eileen. Eileen. Who's also broody. Who we shout, come on, Eileen, to. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And then we have Big Grey and Little Grey. And... They bring so much joy to the people when they walk past their four hens. They love it. Absolutely love it. Um, have you ever owned a dog? Is one of the next questions. Yes, I had a beagle. And his name? Beagley. Beagley. And her name. Her name? Yeah. Sounds like a boy name more than a girl name. Well, it's... Okay. <laughs> and what... Was Beagley like a, like a companion for you when you started work or...? Beagley was a... Yeah, Beagle was a nice little dog, except she ate the inside of my car. And and what about Lancashire Healers? Lancashire Healers, yes, I used to have an... My parents used to have a Lancashire Healer, mm -hmm. yeah, called Bonnie. Bonnie. Yeah. And now you, your sister has a Lancashire Healer. Yes, called now my sister has Twiglet. a Twiglet. Called Twiglet. He's a character. He's a character. He's very cute. A very cute character. Well, well behaved in my opinion. Yep. A very good character. Yep. We'll just shout better, out. better than Bonnie, who used to try and bite everyone's fingers. Oh, no, Twiglet doesn't do that. No, he doesn't. Well, Auntie Jane, if you're listening to this podcast, we've just mentioned Twiglet, so you'll be happy. <laughs> um, if you weren't a vet, what would you have wanted to be? If I couldn't get into vet school as a fallback, I'd decided I would do marine biology. Oh, and what would you have gone into there? I have no idea. You didn't really ever want to do that. I didn't. You did, but mm. um, well, that ends the ends the round of ask Stephen a question. They weren't too bad, were they? No. Thank you. Not as bad as some as I got the other day. Okay, and um, how has Brexit affected vet <laughs> his coffee? See, the whole point of the podcast is it's an informal chat. It's an informal questions. You know, I'm not. I never give the guests the questions in advance because then they prepare them. It's a natural chat. It's you know people finding out about Stephen Baxter. So, but how has how has Brexit affected either veterinary, uh, veterinary surgeons, not surgeries? How has yeah? How has Brexit affected the way? Have you had shortages of anything, or has it affected anything like that, or anything else you have to do extra? Do you have to do anything extra with large animals or food production? Is that the end of the question? <laughs> we um, <laughs> we bought a lot of things in that we thought there were going to be shortages of. Mm -hmm. So we had a lot of PPE, and we had a lot of commonly used drugs and vaccines in. Mm -hmm. So we didn't run out of anything. Um, we are doing quite a lot of export work at the moment mm -hmm. for um, one or two companies mm -hmm. who, um, because of Brexit, need export certification doing. And... Is veterinary science like medical? You know, like you have the, oh, you have like the medical group and now we're out of the European Union. Medicine's different, isn't it? So you're not in the same like laws and things anymore. Is that the same with veterinary? I don't know why I keep saying veterinary. Is that the same thing with veterinary science or is it not? Were you ever part of the 
BVA, that's what I meant. British Veterinary Association. I know that's just Britain. He's yawning. Um, were you ever part of like a European veterinary group? I have no idea. <laughs> I work in Lancashire. <laughs> right. That was... You could have just stopped me mid-sentence mid in that question. It was very difficult to get out. Um, so, we're going to come to a close. What's the future for Ribble Vets? Is there anything in the pipeline? And if so, can you tell us, or is it top secret and we need to watch this space? Like, I didn't like that episode of the Yorkshire Vet where he popped an abscess because it made me feel sick. Oh, that's nothing. Um, I think the hardest thing is trying to do the best for the client mm. or the farmer mm. within what you can do and what they expect you to be able to do. It's mm -hmm. a good answer. Personal, professional and affordable care at Ribble Vets. That's what I've seen the logo is when I did some research for you on, on your website. Um, next Saturday, for any listeners out there that's still listening to father-daughter time, um, next Saturday is Garstang's show. Obviously, it's the first one back since um, the pandemic. It's on the 7th of August, and Ribble Vets have a stand. It's normally near the cattle ring. So that's exciting. Have you missed, have you missed being at the show last year? We've missed being at uh, Garstang's show. We've missed being at all sorts of shows. And... If any listeners are around next Saturday and pop into Garstang's show or, you know, you're going for the day out, then do come along to the, to the Ribble Vet stand and say hello. I'm sure, I'm sure Mr Baxter would love to say hello, wouldn't you? And Lucy Baxter. And Lucy Baxter. Um, and, I, and we can reveal, um, we can do a little reveal that we have, for Garstang's show, got some hats. We've got some very We've got some nice hats. Baseball caps with the Ribble Vets logo on that we will be handing out at the show. I did um, send a message on WhatsApp to the farm vet saying we had bought some baseball hats, but it, I think it uh, put baseball bats. <laughs> um, so some of the vets were wondering who was needing a battering. So. <laughs> No, they're baseball caps, hats, hats caps, not bats. Um, lovely ones, actually, really fashionable. And so they'll be they'll be being handed out. So you know, if you do come along, do say hello, have a chat, have a drink. It's just lovely to to see everyone and be back outside, be back with everyone, seeing everyone, and getting a bit back to more normality. Isn't that right, Stephen? That is correct. Well. I just wanted to say that um, as we come to the end of the podcast, we've been chatting for nearly an hour. That's a long time to chat to me. That's probably the longest chat we've had for a long time. It, yeah, it was. And if anyone wants to know more information about Ribble Vets, you can find them on their website, www.ribblevets.co.uk. You can find them on Facebook at Ribble Vets and at Facebook Ribble farm vets for the sort of large animal side on instagram it's ribble vets ltd for limited and we also have a twitter so keep an eye on all the socials of things we're doing if you want more information like we said and our telephone number which is available 24 7 for our clients emergency care all the time 
01772, you finish it off. 746393. Excellent. Well, I just wanted to thank you for coming on the podcast, having a chat, and I also want to take this opportunity, publicly and privately, to say how proud I am of you, how hard you've worked, how hard you continue to work in your career, and love you lots. Well, if it's top secret, it's a secret from me. What do you see, how do you see Ribble Vets in the next 20 years then? You'll obviously be retired. Yeah. But what do you hope it'll be like? So the same or growing in clients? Uh, Still offering the same care? I hope we're able to offer the same care as previously. Um, I'm hoping that the number of clients will increase, but that we can offer them all the same um, service that we're offering now. Mm-hmm. Other than that, I don't think there's a lot changing. Well, it'll be a good legacy for you. Um, and, yeah, we'll have to watch this space. Watch this space. <laughs> um, so we can't forget you were on BBC Radio Lancashire last week. You I had a little, a little segment. I did. And you sort of spoke about hot weather looking after your animals when you go out on walks, tarmac, pavements, paws, how to keep them cool, things to look out for in the pandemic, uh, not in the pandemic, in the summer, things that are poisonous to animals. Um, You had a few phone-ins, you were very popular, it was very successful, you're back next month, it's going to be a monthly feature hopefully. How did you find being the vet on BBC Radio Lancashire and if someone came to you and said, would you like to do a TV series called The Lancashire Vet? <laughs> I have a very good face for radio. So many people I know would love to see you be The Lancashire Vet and do like a series. Would you not ever do that? I know you're older, but do you not think it'd be really fun? Would you not do it? I think I have some people at work who would love to do that and are far more photogenic than I am. Yeah, but how old's, how old's Peter Wright? He's the same age as you exactly. and he's just The Yorkshire Vet. He does. So, oh... Yeah. What's the weirdest thing about being a vet that someone wouldn't expect? Thank you very much. Thanks. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next week. To keep up to date with all things from a Lancashire Lass, follow on Facebook and Instagram at from a Lancashire Lass.